Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. A fantastic spring of historical exhibitions continues across American art museums, and we've got two more for you this week. First up, Perrin Stein joins me to discuss Jacques-Louis David, Radical Draftsman at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. The Met says it's the first exhibition devoted to David's works on paper. David features over 80 drawings, preparatory studies, and oil sketches related to significant paintings that helped shape public understandings of major events in the year before, during, and after the French Revolution. The exhibition is on view through May 15th. The excellent exhibition catalog was published by the Met. IndieBound and Amazon offer it for about $54 to $65, and of course, we'll have links on manpodcast.com. On the second segment, Frederick Ilchman joins me to discuss Turner's Modern World at the Museum of Fine Arts Boston. But first, Perrin Stein, after the break. Don't miss out on being the first to view a movement in every direction, Legacies of the Great Migration, at the Mississippi Museum of Art. This exhibition asks 12 contemporary artists to trace their personal stories through the Great Migration and explore their family connections to the South. Co-organized with the Baltimore Museum of Art, the exhibition will unveil newly commissioned works across media. A Movement in Every Direction, Legacies of the Great Migration, is now on view at the Mississippi Museum of Art through September 11, 2022. Learn more at msmuseumart.org. Now on view at the Hammer Museum in Los Angeles, Ulysses Jenkins Without Your Interpretation. This major retrospective of the groundbreaking Los Angeles artist encompasses video works, performances, and archival ephemera that highlight the scope of Jenkins' 50-year practice. A pivotal influence on contemporary art since emerging in the late 1970s, Jenkins has constructed an other history that interrogates race and gender as they relate to ritual, history, and state power. Ulysses Jenkins is on view at the Hammer Museum February 6th through May 15th. Details at hammer.ucla.edu. Coming to the Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth on April 1st, Focus, Jamal Cyrus. Houston-based artist Jamal Cyrus examines forgotten, ignored, or fragmentary accounts of Black American culture. He raises clear questions about official history, what is overlooked and why, and the biases held by those writing and interpreting it. Cyrus uses a range of materials, including musical equipment, food, plant life, and used clothing, but transforms them into densely layered objects that refer to Southern material culture. For this exhibition, which is on view through June 26th, Cyrus made new sculptures, drawings, and assemblages that center on what the artist calls sonic territory, the oral and musical landscape of a region, in this case, the Trinity River Basin. The new work specifically examines the contributions of Fort Worthian multi-readist and composer Julius Hemphill. Exploring the area's landscapes, natural and man-made, Cyrus's site-specific exhibition dives into the poetic layers, histories, and mythologies comprising this large area bifurcated and shaped by the Trinity River. Jamal Cyrus at the Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth, April 1st through June 26th. And we're back. Perrin Stein, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you for having me on, Tyler. You started your initial essay in the catalog for this exhibition in a place I did not see coming. You started with Brutus and and, and how David quite often made drawings of Brutus. Why did David do that and why did it catch your attention? It caught my attention and I believe I used the word avatar in my essay at the beginning because 
when you look at the career of David, he is living through all these periods of incredible change from a monarchy to a revolution to the period of Napoleon. And he is throughout this, he's, he's interested in the legends of ancient Rome, but his perspective keeps changing and these things don't stay static. And so for me, they are both threads that run through his work, but they're also mutable. And Brutus is especially interesting to me because he encounters this bust of Brutus when he is in Rome on the Capitoline Hill. And he draws a sketch of this head and he captures the way the shadow falls over the eyes and gives him a very brooding aspect. And he later designs a painting with the subject of Brutus. And Brutus, it's a complicated story where he was responsible for overthrowing corrupt kings, and that led to the founding of the first Roman Republic. And so after that happens and he becomes consul, he discovers his two sons have been embroiled in a conspiracy to restore the monarchy. And because he is a man of principle, he orders his own sons executed. And after experimenting with different parts of this story, David chooses not to depict this at the execution, but the aftermath, when the bodies of the sons are brought back into the domestic setting, into their own house, and the focus is more on the wife, his Buddhist wife, who reacts with horror to the corpses being carried in. And Brutus is shown in the shadows under a statue, an allegory of Rome, and he's brooding, but he is he's torn. And if you think about all of all of David's great paintings, especially of history and mythology, they all gravitate around a very difficult decision, a hard choice. And the question of how you are pulled by the by principle and how you are pulled by personal or family considerations. And there's often a protagonist who is at the middle of making this hard choice. And then they're surrounded by a chorus of other characters who react. And I, to me, David uses those reactions to show the different forces pulling at the decision. So he always sees the complexity in these positions. And he is I mean, a big question around David is how much he foresaw the French Revolution. But putting that aside, he chooses his subjects from ancient history in order to send a message to his own times. He's not choosing them arbitrarily. They send messages of of principle, of challenge, and he is sending a message almost in a veiled way through ancient stories. But getting back to what you asked, and I've strayed a bit about Brutus is this is a horrible thing to think about, somebody who has to kill their own sons and does it because of their beliefs in getting rid of corruption and starting a new society. And he's painting this two years before the French Revolution. He's designing it in drawings. And then it's really interesting as we have in the show two drawings, which are composition studies, one owned by the Getty and one that we acquired at the Met. And in both of them, there are a few elements that are in a slightly different colored ink, and they are things like Phrygian cap and a little, in our drawing, a little strap from the cap, which is inscribed not in Latin, but in French, and it says liberté. So I'm not the first person to say this. Others have proposed that it's possible that after the revolution, he went back and kind of 
heightened and reiterated aspects of the story that make him look prescient because, in fact, Brutus was, as a figure, embraced at the time of the revolution because he overthrew kings. He founded a more egalitarian society. And so he was seen as a hero. And that sculptural bust that David had copied in Rome was actually looted and brought into France where it was placed in the National Assembly. And Brutus became a kind of hero, despite despite the complexity of what he did. And so I think for me, this is so interesting because it shows how David's engagement with the ancient past had this ability to speak to the present, but also was mutable. And the same figure could be seen in different light at different times. Let me fill in a couple things. These four drawings are all from about 1787. It is certainly not only French artists who are fascinated by and using Rome to talk about their own national presence. Of course, right. that's going on in the United States at the same time and will continue in the U.S. for you know 50 to 75 years wow. at least. Um, really will continue through the American centennial, albeit in different ways. One of the fun things about you starting with Brutus and you're talking about Brutus is this kind of parallels your own career track <laughs> of these of these uh, Brutus drawings related to the lictors bringing Brutus the bodies of his sons in the show. Three of the four are at the Met and the Getty. Um, gee, where have you worked? <laughs> well, I think it's not. <laughs> it, it, you're right. It's not a coincidence and that I've been fortunate to work at two great museums and that the art you get exposed to are the things that really get you interested in certain artists. And and at the Met, we have the great painting of the death of Socrates, but the, the germ of doing this show, the idea of doing this show really came out of the acquisition of a, of a study for that when it came to light in 2015. So yeah, I think, I think being around these works of art and spending time with them does lead to deeper engagement. Yes, it works. In a moment, we will kind of loop back to the beginning of David's career. But before we do, I want to talk a little bit about something kind of even more basic, and that is why did David make drawings? So did he intend his drawing practice to stand alone for drawings to be finished, perhaps significant autograph works? Or were they more of a means through which ideas might be developed preliminary to painting, drawings as thought process rather than as finished works? So this gets at something really important that emerged as I was working on this show and the stark contrast between David and the artists I've often worked on before this from earlier times. I mean, drawing became very admired and celebrated in the 18th century when collectors sought drawings, framed them, put them on their walls. They got high prices at sales. And David rebelled against this. He didn't want to create objects for collectors. And so with him, there's a big divide between what painting was for and what drawing was for. And he considered himself a painter. He demanded very high prices for his paintings. He did not sell his drawings. They rarely left his studio except as gifts. And he he mostly kept them to, to reflect on, to study, and he did not want to monetize them. But that is not to say that they were not valued by him. And I think the best way to answer that is to quote that a quote in a letter that David wrote himself in 1812. And he was writing in the context of trying to get a large painting commission. But what he wrote is 
describes his philosophy as thinking of painting as part invention and part execution. And he writes, quote, invention is the essential part of painting and must be long meditated in advance, which involves a great many studies, drawings, and sketches before a work can be brought to completion. So if you look at it, this in David's terms, and that invention is a key part of painting, then drawings are where invention takes place. And so they had a great importance to him, but not as collectibles. As we go along here, we will talk about some ways in which he used drawings, including some really kind of physical construct, deconstruct, deconstruct, reconstruct ways that are, are pretty darn fascinating. One of the many reasons why the, why the catalog is, is, is especially good. So we started by talking about David and his interest in Rome. And so let's go back to the near beginning of David's career. In the, in the 1770s, when he's about 27, he leaves Paris to study at the French Academy in Rome. And while there, he makes, in just five years, about a thousand drawings, gasp. So what does he do with all those drawings when he returns to Paris? And how will they inform his work? Well, this is one of the key things about how David develops as an artist and how the neoclassical style is born in him, because he he comes back a different person than different artist than he was when he went to Italy. He was trained in the late Rococo period, and he did in his before he went to Italy, he encountered numerous failures and setbacks. And he competed for the Prix de Rome four times, and it was only on his fourth time that he won. So he he was already struggling. And when he got there, he was subject to a lot of the same, you know, strict curriculum and hierarchy and rules that he was back in Paris. You had to draw male nudes. You had to make specified copies. You were supported by the crown, but you had to follow their rules. But clearly, he did a lot in addition to that. He went around the city with small sketchbooks, and he drew, as you say, over a thousand drawings that were outside the official curriculum. And what they were, were they were sketches of, more than anything, sketches of antique sculpture, reliefs, you know, he also Renaissance and Baroque paintings, also landscapes. And he was conducting his own education that was separate and apart from what he was supposed to be doing. And it was through that that he really transformed himself. And what is really interesting about his process is what you alluded to, which is what he did with them when he got back to Paris. And he takes these many sketchbooks and he takes a scissor to them and he cuts them all out. And then he gets these large albums with large pages and he pastes them down into these albums about four to a page. But what he does is he takes all these drawings and he made at different times and different places and he organizes them by what they depict. So he will have pages of seated men that are all copies after ancient sculptures or standing women or or landscapes. And so what he's doing is he's creating a reference book or a repository for himself to use. And so you could see at the outset, this very pragmatic approach to use what he had gleaned to make use of it and to use it. I think of it often as a building block, because these were the figures, the poses, the motifs, the aesthetic ideals that he wanted to incorporate that were his ideals. And 
he comes back and re and reorganizes all of this and has to think about what will be most useful to him. And they, these albums stay in his studio for his lifetime and his students consult them. And sometimes you can see he scribbled ideas in the margins from later decades. And so he's always consulting them. So to me, those albums are really the key to how he goes about building his career. And in a way, it's a rejection of the teaching of the academy. It's his creation of his own, of his own hierarchy and his own, his own source book, really. I am no historian of 18th and 19th century mm-hmm. studio practice, but, but certainly by the mid to late 19th century artists, at least in the U.S., are often keeping in their studios books of photographs of famous sculptures, classical works or reasonably contemporary sculptures. And as I looked through the catalog for your show and saw pictures included in the catalog that represented these pages of David's, I thought of how 100 years later, artists were were still doing that only with what was for them contemporary technology. It was, I mean, it was a really interesting way of thinking about how he remained in touch with a place even when he was not there and how he kept finding newness in those experiences he had in his 20s. We'll try to get for manpodcast.com a couple of images of those glued album pages. They're pretty They're pretty neat. I wanted to pick a drawing that David made in Rome to talk about. And the one I picked was the combat of Diomedes because it is really effing big. Um, And also because it's really unlike anything he would do for a while. Mm -hmm. It's 42 by 80 inches. It's enormous. It's detailed. Like I said, it's anomalous. What does this work, which is in the Albertina's collection, tell us about David and Rome and the course he might've taken and the course he ended up actually taking? Yeah. If only we knew I could answer all of that. But I mean, I should be clear here that I'm guessing to some degree. And also because of how he cut up his drawings, we have this five-year period that this is very frustrating for an art historian, but where you can't really create a chronology and see the order he developed mm-hmm. in because he scrambled it. So mm-hmm. what I think my my best guess is what happens is he is frustrated by these rejections when he's in Paris. He's trying to break in. He he doesn't win this competition over and over again. And in this period in Ancien Régime France, if you want to be successful, the highest form of success is to be a history painter, and you have to be accepted by the Academy Royale to get important commissions, and that is your path, and there are gatekeepers, and you have to, to win, you have to impress them, and you have to play their game. And to some degree, I think the failures drummed into a very strong need to succeed on their terms, because that was what you had to do. And at the same time, something else is germinating. So I think one thing he had to do was when you're in Rome, they regularly sent back shipments of the work of the students to the arts administrators back in Paris because they were paying all the expenses for the school and they had to demonstrate that the students were making progress. So they would send back paintings and drawings to for academicians back in Paris to judge. And so on one level, I think David was trying to impress those people. And that the the drawing you're talking about, the combat of Diomedes, is completely opposite. You're right, everything we think of about David. It is this <laughs> roiling battlefield with a million people on it and 
different battles playing out all over the place. And it looks like a gigantic Baroque jumble. And in fact, he is, he's emulating the ideals of the time of the battle paintings of Charles Lebrun, Giulia Romano, Pietro da Cortona, other people like that. And he's showing he can do that. And he does it very effectively. It's energetic. It's full of life. It's sparkling and it's lights and darks. And it's very impressive. It was probably done early on. And at some point, he's shifting from trying to match the accomplishments of the past to trying to craft a new style that will challenge these metrics. And some of the dated works you do have are at the very end of his stay in Rome. And some of those drawings are the opposite aesthetically. They're, they're more pared down in the number of figures, they're more planar, and they show moral episodes from ancient, from ancient history and mothers sending sons into battle or old generals reduced to begging, but they are moral examples and they are simplified and they are the precursors to his full neoclassical style. And those date to the very end of his day. So something happened along the way. And some of the works that I think were early in his stay in Rome are much more backward looking, or at least competing with the artists of the past. And then he puts that behind him. We talked earlier about how David learned or taught himself to build paintings from often mini drawings, sometimes by cutting them out and literally collaging them, and then making a painting from that collaged mm -hmm. group of drawings. Could you pick a painting, maybe a single painting, and, and talk us through how David built it from drawings and his drawing practice? Yeah. So I think this notion of cutting and collage and rearranging, whether it is literal or metaphorical, is key to David's working process. And the premise of this whole show is that drawings, drawing was important to David because it was the means by which he created these masterpieces that, that wouldn't have happened without this process. And he would work in these series and iterations of studies where he approached things in steps. They didn't come fully formed. So one of the best examples of that in the show that is the sequence that depict Paris and Helen, the loves of Paris and Helen. And this is a subject at the beginning of the decade-long Trojan War when Paris abducts Helen and you know sets off these all these events. But David is depicting the two, the couple alone in a room. And we borrowed for the show a tracing, which was in one of David's albums, because in addition to all these drawings, he sometimes would paste in tracings after prints. And this one is after a print of a Greek vase in the collection of Lord Hamilton. And it was in David's album. And then he drew right next to it, he copied two of the figures, which were Paris and Helen, but changed them a bit. And then he kept drawing them over and over again, switching, swapping their directions until he, he was very compelled by the poses of these two figures. And then eventually he drew more and he drew a room around them. And he started adding accoutrement like military objects and beds and walls and tables. And he made a whole sequence of drawings where he tried out different ideas, adding a puto, taking it away, adding a pool. 
And then later stages of his work would often involve making an oil sketch, and it might be right on top of a drawing or it might be on canvas. And he would start to try out his ideas for color, usually after he'd made composition studies in, in gray wash. And he would use oil paint to add color. Often he would not like the results or want to improve the results, and he would change the colors of many of the objects. Then late in the development, he would have live models pose in the positions of the figures he had already designed on paper so that he could make detailed studies of the fall of light on their drapery. So he goes through all these steps before he puts brush to canvas. And usually by that point, he has a very good idea of what his picture is going to look like. Harris and Helen are represented in the show by a three or four drawing sequence that culminates in an oil sketch. Technical term, upcoming. Stuff around Paris and Helen, as you noted, changes in, in every drawing and really kind of where he cites the figures in space and with what's around them, ranging from drapery to architecture, changes. As you put those on a wall, presumably next to each other, and, mm -hmm. and, and get to see them in a line, what do you learn about David's objectives, what's motivating him, what's interesting him, what he wants to communicate in the eventual painting? We didn't pick out just a selection of drawings we thought were beautiful or well done or interesting. We picked very specific ones to tell these stories, these kinds of stories of origin and development of ideas. And what David is trying to get at as he, as he keeps working is only in part aesthetic, in part to me, in large part, it is about clarity and depth of the psychology of the scene. So even in this story of Paris and Helen, it is on its surface a love story, but it's of course part of a deeper conflict between two warring states and that the figures, the characters in the scene are pulled by their interests of their of their nations and also that their personal interests and they are in conflict. So even in a love scene, there is complexity to each of the figures and, and which way they are being pulled. And I think when David works up compositions, there's a shift over his career, but in the 1780s, there's a consistent tendency to distill and simplify, often to reduce the number of characters in a scene. He really focuses on pointing our eye to key details. You know, he uses perspective to do this, or he clears out an empty zone in the center. If you look at the drawings for Brutus, the, the bodies of the sons of Brutus being returned, the mother in that scene is outstretching her hand and her, her hand is in the very center of the composition. And what he does is he clears everything else away and he spotlights it so that her gesture is central. So he picks out the sections he feels are most meaningful and he makes sure we look at those. So he adds, he subtracts, but it's always to the end of, you know, a deeper psychology, a deeper, a stronger impact. He does the spotlighting thing a lot in, in the paintings, you know, mm -hmm. whereas central, maybe not, maybe not central in the canvas, but central in the narrative figure is, is spotlighted. And sometimes another figure as in the Brutus pictures is, is in shadow. You know, a great example of that is the death of Socrates, the painting of which has been in the Mets collection since 1931. In the drawings for the death of Socrates, I think there are three in the show. There are four. Four yeah. in the show, four in the yeah. show. That spotlight effect is not in the drawings. It is in the painting. 
And then the other big change is that David is deciding, playing with ways of citing his scene. So the background in two of the drawings in your show are radically different. Why is that? What is he what is he playing with there in, in, in changing the background and the staging and what might that tell us? Well, with the development of the death of Socrates, one thing that's really interesting is that one drawing that was found a few decades ago shows us that he began working on that idea in 1782, which is, we know from that, that he was trying out all kinds of ideas and keeping them in portfolios for later possible use. And so the second drawing in the sequence is a drawing that was unknown until it came on the market in 2015, and we were able to acquire it. And my theory is that he hadn't thought about it for about five years. And then he he gets someone to commission a painting from him. And he all of a sudden has a rush of ideas and makes a lot of changes. Version is more simple in that it has a smaller cast of characters against a kind of flat stone wall backdrop. And so some of the changes he makes when he returns to this around 1786 is that he creates receding hallway at the left. And that is so that he can add in the background an earlier part of the story where Socrates' family takes leave and departs. Often when he's working on one of these subjects from ancient history, he will go to literature. He often, or theatrical presentations, he will go back to sources of the story and reflect on different aspects. So no doubt he was doing that here. As he develops his drawings in tandem, he's probably also reading And in this case, consulting scholars, too, we know, because he adds Plato to the scene seated, which is odd at first glance, because he's seated at the foot of the bed, facing away from the drama, his head bowed. And this is because he was not actually present in the prison cell when Socrates died. But we know the story from his writings that he did later. And so David places him in there almost as a storyteller in a way that David is the visual storyteller, but Plato is embedded there and you see at the, at his feet writing implements. And you also see in one of the composition drawings that David has drawn in perspective lines for the setting with a single vanishing point right at the crown of Plato's head. And so he's doing these subtle things to like draw our eyes again to certain places. And so He's playing with the architectural backdrop for very specific reasons to add parts of the story or to frame certain figures. In the earlier drawing for the death of Socrates from 1782, Plato is there on the far left, but his influence is, I presume, represented by a bookcase that is behind Socrates. And Mm -hmm. you mentioned those writing implements at Plato's feet in the finished painting and in the drawing the Met acquired seven years ago. The, the bookcase is gone and the writing implements are at his feet. So I think, correct me if I'm wrong, we can see David changing how he represents writer-historian influence within the work. I think I'd probably prefer to be represented by my books than by my laptop. But <laughs> no one, you know, he right. didn't ask me. Yeah, no, I think that's an interesting thought. And I think also he's just uncluttering the wall behind the head of Socrates too, But all these little movements of of still life elements, of architectural elements, are all for a reason to control how we see and think about the scene and very purposeful, which is just drummed home over and over again as we get to look at the unfolding of these 
paintings that we know so well as finished products. Back to contemporary politics. The French Revolution happens. Mm -hmm. How, if at all, does it cause a change in David's practice? And do we see that happening in his drawings? Well, it creates a major change in his practice because you have this artist who had been, in the years just leading up to that, acclaimed as the leader, you know, uncontested leader of the French school. He had his, his works in the salon, in each salon, were so well received. And then with the events of the revolution, all of a sudden, all the systems of patronage were gone and the types of subjects that were to be depicted instead of being subjects of ancient Rome legends and mythologies were all of a sudden scenes of contemporary life. So this is different than anything he had done before. And the people, the crown, the aristocrats, people who had commissioned paintings before from him were no longer doing that. And he, he was very in, sympathetic with and involved with the revolutionary cause. And he was very sympathetic with this cause. And many of the leaders of the revolution were friends of his. And some of the things he worked on were proposed to be paintings of foundational events of the French Revolution. And so one of the major works we have in the show its first time in the U.S. is the Oath of the Tennis Court. And this is an event very early on in the revolution when members of the Third Estate gather at Versailles and take an oath to write a constitution. And they're, they're, it's interesting because the word oath, of course, is the same as Oath of the Horatii. And the poses David uses are very much echoes of what you see in his earlier painting, The Oath of the Horatii. But instead of three brothers taking an oath, you have now hundreds of people jammed into this tennis court, and it's a real place, and the people are real living contemporaries, so they are portraits. And it's a very different challenge, and so you can, you can look at it as a complete shift, but there's also a lot of continuity in how he approaches it. And in fact, it is his training as a history painter and his use of classical models that makes him able to take this contemporary event and give it the authority of a historical moment and give it as much power as it has. The painting was never completed because over these years, everything was so fast changing that <laughs> that people would be guillotined or out of power or whatever before you had a chance to finish anything. But but the finished drawing, he was one of the only two drawings he exhibited in a salon in his lifetime. And he did it in order to raise money because there wasn't a, an, a, a royal sponsor for the commission, obviously. So he had to raise money from many people to make the painting. And so he exhibited this very finished drawing in order to solicit donations. So before we get to that finished drawing, there are a number of drawings in the exhibition where we see David making studies for figures that will end up in the 42-inch, I think, wide finished drawing. And so one of the things we see happening in these drawings is David working in kind of, eh, I'm going to fudge here a bit, a classical manner. So he's painting these figures, I'm sorry, he's drawing these figures nude and then putting clothes on them. I think there are six of these pre-Oath of the Tennis Court drawings in the show. What are the kinds of things we see Davi doing in those preparatory drawings that end up in the air quotes finished drawing? So to create the Oath of the Tennis Court, he begins first with a sketchbook. And the sketchbook we have on view is borrowed from Versailles. And it has on every page quick sketches 
of individual figures who will be in the finished drawing, some nude, some clothed, and he's experimenting with poses. And then we have on the wall, a larger sheet where he then begins assembling them into groups and, and adding wash to show the light and shadow. And it's a very complex problem and it takes him a long time to work out how he will arrange so many of these figures into a, into a defined space. And he, he works hard to create poses to give them some variety so they're not cookie cutter repetition. So some are stand on chairs and some are writing and some are clinging to the windows and some, you know, they're doing a whole variety of different things. There's and, a lot of action in, in each individual grouping of figures. Within. Yeah, a lot of action. And it's very poignant. There are even children at the corner watching history unfold. There's an abandoned tennis racket and a ball at the lower left. There's figures in the window struggling with inside out umbrellas. There's a storm raging outside. And of course, it's important to know that David did not see this. He was not working from a photograph of this. He created this scene. I mean, they did vow to write a constitution, but to arrange it like this as if, you know, it's like a theatrical production, like he's on one side and everything's facing him. And he fabricated this composition. It's incredibly powerful, but it was made up by him out of parts, which is exactly his same working process as when he is creating his subjects of ancient history. It's the only thing in the show that's at all like the combat of Diomedes. <laughs> yeah, you could say that, and that there's really a lot going on. <laughs> there's a lot going on. It's a big horizontal. It's a, it's a horizontally dominated yeah. Yeah. composition that brings the eye to a point that is not quite in the middle of the composition, but is, that is just off it, in which a storm yes. is is raging. I mean, you know, a big difference in the Oath of the Tennis Court is the figures and the groupings are much more individuated than mm -hmm. they are in the Combat of Diomedes, which is much more like, you know, kind of the Battle of Keskina and it's clusterfuckiness, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, um, whereas, whereas the Oath of the Tennis Court is much more spontaneous in the action that appears to be going on within it. Yeah, it appears spontaneous, but I also feel like it's like a puzzle that was put together with a thousand pieces. Yeah, and yeah. They all, and there's one on, there's one drawing on the wall where you see he's experimenting with two figures, one on a chair and one on the ground. And then in the, in the final drawing, they swap places, but he's just, and he traces on top of one of them, the figures that he might put next to them to see how they'll overlap. I mean, it was a big spatial relations puzzle he was solving. Yeah, sorry. I meant spontaneous in the sense that the action is spontaneous rather than yes. the production of the action is spontaneous. Right, right, right. Yeah, it's it's a heck of a drawing. As we've been talking about the Oath of the Tennis Court and other of David's drawings, we've been talking about how, how he assembled paintings from many drawings, sometimes using scissors and making collages and all that. One of the things I found myself wondering as I read the catalog was whether or not that was a common practice in David's France or among David's other contemporaries across Europe, or if this was something he came to, got to on his own, and that was different. It was not unknown, and mm -hmm. it was perhaps more common even in drawings for decorative art. It was not unknown, but I would say he did it more often than other people. And he did it in many ways that are not obvious. But even in the first study for the death of Socrates, five years before he had a commission, 
there's a sequence of ideas because there's two large pieces of paper pasted down on that that you don't see at first. One of the figures he completely redrew. If you look at it with light shining from behind, you could see the figure was a different scale. And one on the doorway that shows he changed the architecture. So many of his composition drawings, you know, have a kind of archaeology of different periods to them. And he often, you'll see in many, also adds strips at the top or side margin because he just wants to enlarge the composition in certain ways. And sometimes he did cut figures out and paste them down. And other times he employed tracing, which is another way to take some preformed element and put it into a new composition. And I think if you look at our, we have a big messy drawing for Leonidas at Thermopylae in the last gallery. And if you look at the technique in that drawings, to me, some of the drawings, the contours of the figures look very controlled and calm as if they are tra traced or transferred from an earlier study and others look very quickly done and unfinished and messy. And I just think it's part of his iterative process and he would carry over what he wanted and then change parts. And it was done in a variety of ways through squaring and transfer, through cutting, through tracing, but it just shows his way of thinking of the parts as kind of mobile components that he can move around. And so he didn't invent it, but I think he used it much more than other artists of his time. David also throughout his career, but especially I think later, um, I may be wrong on that. He draws portraits and head studies. Why? Are they only in service to paintings he plans to make? Or is he also just, you know, staying sharp and exercising his, his hand and his eye? Well, these are in a way two different categories. And he mm. did draw portraits throughout his life. And this is a much more conventional thing that all artists did at this time. And there's a big range of the types he draws. And late in life, when he is in exile in Brussels, he creates some of his most poignant and naturalistic portraits of his own family members when they visit him. And he must feel you know, it must be hard to be separated, even though people can visit him, he is banished from his homeland. And what's interesting is he draws portraits during that last decade, both from life and from memory. And he has this habit of annotating them to say which he was drawing. And it's just interesting to me that that's a distinction. He draws this one, we have one drawing he, of his daughter that's after from his memory of a painting he made of her before he was in exile. And then he does another drawing of her as an older woman visiting with, his, with David's granddaughter in Brussels. That's completely different in feeling that he's doing from life. And those are probably made for personal reasons. He, the drawings of heads, this is a much harder question. And it's something I have been wondering about the whole time I've been working on this show and not fully answered because there are some that are not study for paintings and not portraits. And what are they exactly? There's a group of these drawings that are very puzzling to me. Are they exercises? They're hard to date. And then, so he, he draws in Brussels a lot of studies of individual heads that feel like they are drawn from memory. They feel like they are figures from legend or mythology, their, their expressions are very distraught or very full of emotion, and yet they're not part of a planning for a painting. They're not part of a narrative, and yet he draws 
many sheets of them, either singly or in groups. And scholars have had widely divergent opinions on how to read these late drawings of heads. And to me, it's they're very interesting because, as we talked about at the beginning, how he's copying antique sculptures and busts in order to build his paintings. It seems to me almost like at the end of his life, he's drawing through memory and in a way he's unpacking yeah. his his great masterpieces and perhaps reliving or remembering his great triumphs. I mean, that's just like a personal take. We don't really know. We have this one letter where he describes them as, where he says, I first started drawing them as caprice or follies, drawing onto the paper, whatever I thought of. But then I began to draw them more for real. And I feel that they deserve a place in my oeuvre. So it's very interesting mm. that he's thinking about these drawings that he's making without any true function as having a place in his oeuvre. And he's, he's, he's already thinking about how his drawings that he did not sell will be his legacy. And to me, that that's really interesting. I want to kind of work toward closing with two major works late in the show. In 1799, David shows a massive picture, 17 feet wide, titled Intervention of the Sabine Women. It was a picture five years in the making. It's his first major Napoleonic picture. What is it about? And what do the drawings that are in, in your show tell us about it? Well, the intervention of the Sabine women, like many of his major pictures, was planned over many years. And this is one of the big lessons of working on David, is that how he thought of it at the beginning and during and after may not be a static thing, but he did begin making sketches while he was still in prison. We haven't talked about it yet, but he was in prison after the fall of Robespierre. And when he was released, France was in a very different place. It had been fractured by the, the decade of revolution. And the intervention of the Sabine women is often interpreted as a call for reconciliation. Because it's, again, like he's often drawn to a legend that has to do with the founding stories of Rome. And you have these two tribes, and the Romans have kidnapped the women, abducted the women of the Sabine tribe. And three years later, their husbands and fathers come to attack Rome. And in the middle of the battle, the women step into the middle of the battlefield and put their arms out to stop the fighting. They, at this point, some of them have children and they are married to their, to the Romans. And then the Sabines are all, are their fathers and brothers. And they are saying, stop fighting. And this is not a commonly depicted scene. And it's interpreted in the historical context as being a call to peace. And France also being a, a country that has been divided by warring factions. And the drawings for this are, are pretty fascinating. You have one from Lille, which appears to be squared, sort of. Yeah, that's a very odd drawing. And it's, it's a very it's odd drawing. Cut irregularly. And like some other drawings, it appears to have parts that are traced and parts that are improvised and some figures that will appear in the final painting and some that won't. The very beautiful drawing we have from Douay, that's a drapery study of a kneeling mother holding a child. Doesn't eat, that figure doesn't even appear in the final painting. We have a sketch from that came out of an album that's in Stockholm of a horseback warrior putting his sword back in its sheath, which is just one of the many signs that they were heeding 
her call to stop the fighting. And you that know, one is it, in the he, painting. That one does make the painting. That, yes, yeah, in a slightly different form. But yes, yeah. so he shows people taking off their helmets, putting their weapons away as a sign that they are heeding her call to stop the battle. I thought what was really interesting about the drawings from this painting that you included in the show is that they are the drawings that emphasize peace. Even the drapery, the spectacular drapery study drawing that the figure in which didn't make the final painting is a figure that represents peace and future. Uh, the, the, the figure is holding up a child, a, a small baby. And I presume that that was a story you were like really as a curator mindful of telling and foregrounding. I was mindful of telling and foregrounding that the, the, that the story of the painting was about peace at the end of, of terror. I think what that shows us is that David was at different points in his career, selecting episodes of ancient history, very specifically for the moment he was living in. And that although they they often have to do with the founding of Rome, that choosing a story, not of a principled reason to go off to battle, but a reason to stop battling is not a coincidence. And it just mm. shows how David, who is a history painter, is always talking to the present as well in a very conscious way. There is a companion picture to the intervention of the Sabine women also now at the Louvre. I think we mentioned it a bit earlier. Mm-hmm. What what is it and what did the two pretty darn finished drawings for it, one at the Louvre and one at the Met, tell us about that painting and how David thought it through? Well, that painting, Leonidas at Thermopylae, has a very interesting story as well. Leonidas was a Spartan king and he was very admired by the Jacobins, a group of which David was a member. And the episode David shows is when he has his 300 soldiers and he is about to go into battle against the army of the Persian king Xerxes, and they are greatly outnumbered, and they are very clear on the fact that they will all perish. And one of them is carving into the stone an epitaph and to say, remember us, and we fought, you know, we fought for our country. And there is an anecdote that's relayed by one of David's students years later that when the young Napoleon visited David's studio maybe a decade earlier. He saw some drawings for this subject and he and he admonished the artist and said, why are you depicting the vanquished? You should spend your time on the victors. And David did in, in fact put the subject aside and he spent many years working on big paintings that basically glorified Napoleon and served Napoleon's agenda. And then it's only late in the in the Napoleonic era in the last few years when Napoleon's often absent from Paris on military campaigns and begins to have more losses and things are going less well for him that David returns to this subject. And he paints this again like in all of his earlier classical subject paintings, it's a sub, it's a figure making a hard choice. And Leonidas is at the center of that composition, looking out at the viewer. And he is, he is kind of solid while everything swirls around him. He's unmoving while everything swirls around him. And he's responsible for choosing to lead these people into their certain death, death. And again, it's about principles versus loss. 
And that's just a theme that you see throughout. But the irony here is that is that things are looking less good for Napoleon at this point, and the French army is also going to suffer losses. So again, it's he had thought of the subject about a decade earlier, but at the time he actually paints it, its meaning is different again. It's this constant inflection or interaction between the subjects and what is happening around him. Artists loved raising an eyebrow at Napoleon, witness Canova and Madame Mare, right? <laughs> the, the drawing of Leonidas in your collection is really a perfect example of what you were just talking about. Leonidas is drawn very confidently and quietly, if you will, whereas elsewhere in your drawing, David's hand is much more frenzied and and much more active. Everything seems to be moving, even the tree at the far right of the drawing, while Leonidas is just frozen in the light in the middle of the drawing. Yeah, I think that's two things. I think it's intentional that he's a statue-like pose and Mm. he's interior in his thoughts. And so I think that is expressing something, but I think in terms of artistic process, to me, I would also guess that he has in prior sheets resolved the pose he wants for Leonidas. And thus he is just kind of tracing his contours and not actively thinking about it. So it's, I yeah. think it's both those things. Yeah. Yeah. And yours is squared. So I would imagine yours is the last drawing, right? Are we assuming that? And squaring just means they carry over parts to another sheet. I mean, I think it doesn't, ah, it doesn't mean, mean it's the last. It just means that they're taking things and want to transpose them and use them again, let's say. It sounds very David. Aaron <laughs> Stein, thanks yeah. very much. Thank you so much for having me. Explore the first U.S. museum retrospective of the pioneering artist Harry Bertoia at the Nasher Sculpture Center. See more than 100 works of sculpture, design, and jewelry that influenced culture, both at the mid-century and now. In complement to the exhibition, don't miss an installation from pioneering sound artist Olivia Block, which utilizes Bertoia's sound sculptures. Learn more and get your tickets at nashersculpturecenter.org. Support for The Man Podcast comes from the Pulitzer Arts Foundation, a museum in St. Louis that believes in the power of dynamic experiences with art. This spring, the Pulitzer presents Assembly Required, an exhibition featuring nine artists whose work invites your active participation. Engage with work by Francis Elise, Rashid Arin, Saya Armajani, Tanya Bruguera and Instar, Ligia Clark, Elio Oidesica, Yoko Ono, Ligia Pape, and Franz Erhard Walter. Created between the 1950s and the present, the artworks respond to distinct social and political moments, from unrest in the United States during the Vietnam War to Peru's military dictatorship. The artists offer unique perspectives on social change, addressing the need for optimism and hope in the face of global tensions. The exhibition poses questions about how art allows us to imagine new ways of being in the world. Assembly Required opens March 4th and is on view through July 31st, 2022. For more information, visit pulitzerarts.org. On view at the Getty Villa through August 8th, the dazzling new exhibition Persia, Ancient Iran and the Classical World explores the artistic and cultural connections between ancient Iran, which was historically known as Persia, Greece, and Rome. Works on view include royal sculpture, spectacular luxury objects, religious images, and historical documents assembled from major museums in the United States, Europe, and the Middle East. The exhibition also features an immersive film exploring the site and palaces of Persepolis, the ceremonial capital of Persia. 
Plan your visit, view related events, and book free advance reservations today at getty.edu. Welcome back. Next up, Frederick Ilchman returns to the program to discuss the Museum of Fine Arts Boston presentation of Turner's Modern World. The exhibition, which originated at the Tate, was curated by a team of Brits. Ilchman organized the MFA Boston presentation with Julia Welch and Kara Wallahan. Turner's Modern World features about 100 Turners, including paintings, watercolors, drawings, and sketchbooks, and argues for the present socio-political relevance of Turner's work. In Boston, the presentation centers one of Turner's most important works, the MFA's own Slave Ship from 1840. It's a dramatic indictment of the transatlantic slave trade. Turner's Modern World is on view through July 10th. The catalog was published by the Tate. Andy Bound and Amazon offer it for around $42 to $55. Frederick Ilchman, welcome back to the Modern Art Notes podcast. It's great to be here. Always fun to talk about art. (laughs) Yeah, it is. I am quite often frustrated by projects that present 19th century art within the context of our present rather than the artist's present, as, as, as the artist engaging with contemporary life, culture, and politics. And this project, which Boston is, is, is now presenting, you know, beginning with the director's forward and throughout the project, this exhibition is insistent about presenting Turner's radicalism on the terms of his own life and his own nation. How is Turner a radical painter? We have, you know, in, over the last 50 years, really, we give a lot of credit to Turner for being a precursor, right? He's, the, he's several decades ahead of the Impressionists, right? I mean, he's painting London in the Fog 60 years uh, before Monet does it. And he's such a, Turner really anticipates the abstract Impressionists in the mid 20th century, all those aggressive mark makings and the sense of the dynamic, powerful brush. I even think in many of his later unfinished works, he's prefiguring the minimalists. But That's not really the point. Uh, He's not good because he does it first. He's good or indeed great because he does it beautifully with real conviction. In the exhibition, you know, we should make a distinction between modernity, which is paying attention to your era, in his case, the modern era, right? We've got the Industrial Revolution and big social movements like the extension of voting rights, the abolition of slavery, real questions about, about government, the place of government, how to govern, and then the place of the worker, right? These are subjects that Turner embraces. So he is up to date very much in the events of his time. But also the key thing is that in many ways, he is a proto-modernist, right? Modernism uh, is the artistic literary movement uh, that begins in the 19th and culminates in the 20th century. And I'm not saying he's really part of that because he is trained in a traditional manner. He's a member of the Royal Academy. Uh, he's very good at architectural draftsmanship. I mean, he's got the, the old fashioned chops, But what's exciting is he takes on the big topics of the day in a really revolutionary and dynamic manner, so much so that most contemporaries don't get him. He wisely saves everything, it seems, uh, gives an amazing bequest to the British nation, some 300 oil paintings and tens of thousands of works on paper, hundreds of sketchbooks. Many of these works aren't finished, but if he'd wanted to dispose of them, he would. And he didn't. So important thing about Turner is it seems that he was waiting for later audiences. What I'm trying to get at, though, is that Turner is exciting because he seems to come so early. He's a herald, a precursor, right? He's the John the Baptist of the modernist movement. But more importantly, this exhibition is saying, Turner's Modern World is saying that his subject matter counts. It's not all abstract or verging on abstract. He really cared about what he painted. His choice of subject matters is important. 
Now, the beginning of the exhibition, right in the first room, which we've designed to look fairly Victorian, it's a beautiful British sort of green color. We've got a crown molding and a chair rail and a baseboard. We have this wonderful large painting, The Fall of the Rhine in Schaffhausen, where some 1806, Turner's transported us up high into the Swiss Alps. The Rhine, various tributaries have come together to make a mighty river. There's this huge waterfall. There's a human drama in the foreground. We've got these cart horses. They're battling each other, sort of fighting. And a woman kind of runs up to grab her little child and move it away from the horses. But the point is the background, this huge waterfall where he's used a palette knife and really thick brush strokes. I mean, that's the excitement. So you can encapsulate our thesis in what happens after this painting. Turner had maintained doing pictures about the sublime, about the great power of nature and how mankind is rather puny in comparison to nature. Had he done that for the next 40 years, he'd still be one of those. But we believe that because Turner doesn't just paint alpine landscapes and waterfalls and clouds, but indeed engages with the big events of his day and does this consistently, it makes him the very greatest of British artists. I, th- I think another way of, of summarizing the show and indeed much of Turner's accomplishment is that he joins romanticism's interest in the power of nature with empathy for individual humans in single pictures. That's a nice summary. I mean, he he is one of the great romantic artists, but also empathy is an accurate description of him. Remember, he's not a great figure painter. He's more comfortable painting crowds than large form uh, format human figures. They, the scale is quite small. And part of that might be about his thinking about the overall power of nature and how we are relatively powerless, even as we kill all the whales and cross the landscapes of Britain with train tracks and new canals. And there's a dichotomy there, I think, that he was really engaged with. Let's go back to Turner's early life. In 1805, he invests 100 pounds in a Jamaican gulag. Turner was very much eager to be part of the establishment. You mentioned, for example, his membership in the RA and to participate in kind of upper middle class, at least, business pursuits. And over time, his, his politics evolved. Are there some works in the exhibition where we can see his worldview changing, adapting, his social and political radicalism beginning to emerge? It's important to emphasize that, that Turner did invest in a Jamaican plantation to be worked on by enslaved people. The scheme collapsed. He lost, everyone lost their money. But yes, he was trying to get in on a, on a good deal, you know, a bit like people have been seduced by various internet and e-commerce things over the past 20 years. He had friends that were ardent abolitionists. He writes this very long poem, un, you know, unpublished, unfinished, The Fallacies of Hope, which really seems to decry human suffering in general, profiting off of other people. He's himself a shrewd businessman. He's pretty canny. He really knows how to display his art. Uh, he doesn't cut his prices, uh, even when he falls uh, out of fashion, comparatively. We don't really have the sort of statements where he says slavery you know, is truly wrong, though we have in the painting, the slave ship, you know, the most stinging indictment of the entire slave trade in, in the history of art. I, I think that painting that he displays in 1840, which is a banner year for him, he displays a whole number of works at the Royal Academy. And that's the year that the first uh, World Anti-Slavery Convention was held in London at a time overlapping the Royal Academy show. I think that's a strong statement right there. That painting is is bewildering, right? I mean, it's pe- some people immediately don't, they can't read what's going on in it. When they do talk about it, it's kind of uh, cringe-inducing. Everyone's talking about the accuracy of the waves, right? Not so much the lament of what has happened to the human beings. And John Ruskin, who easily Turner's greatest defender, his champion, and 
you know, the most important English art critic of the whole 19th century. In one very proud sentence, he says, if I were to rest Turner's immortality upon any single work, I should choose this. So the slave ship is one that a lot of people are talking about and people that love Turner, Ruskin particularly, are saying, this is, this is Turner. So, so that's a strong indication there. Then again, the subject matter of that painting is an aside. It's a footnote in the first volume, 1843 of Modern Painters. Ruskin, like other critics, is talking about how there had never been a more beautiful or more truthful sunset or better rendered waves, but they're not really engaging with the subject matter. It wasn't, people weren't blind to it, but maybe they didn't want to talk about it. And the goal of this exhibition is to really focus on subject matter and see if these paintings and the choice of topics can speak for Turner. The painting we're talking about here from 1840, which it should be noted is, is over 20 years before an American painter will really address slavery at all, is Slave Ship, Slavers Throwing Overboard, The Dead and Dying, Typhoon Coming On. Ruskin owns it, and according to the MFA's provenance, it enters the United States at an interesting moment in the year 1876, in the year of the American centennial. Let's begin to work toward that painting a little bit. There, there, there are two ways of thinking toward the picture. One is kind of ideological, which we've been talking about, and another is painterly. Let's talk painterly for a moment. I think there are some pictures in this exhibition that point to how Turner will paint and build slave ship. If you were to kind of build a mini art history arriving at slave ship, where, where might you start? So with, with pictures like the fall of the Rhine, you see that he is determined that even if his watercolors will be quite detailed with really minute strokes, really building up in a way that a traditional oil painting would be. But by the you know, 1803-45, he is now painting quite loosely. He's trying to get effects of spray and big boulders and clouds and sunsets that really don't work well. I mean, these are things you can't do easily in fresco, for example, right? But with oil that dries slowly, you can really push it around on the canvas. You can. Like many artists, he is looser in his preparatory stages than he is, of course, in the final picture. And in Paintings like the Chichester Canal, another one of the Tate, which is a, this is in the exhibition, it is a, it's a sketch uh, to our post-impressionist eyes. It looks quite finished, but of course the sky clouds are just hinted at. Bits of paint are supposed to do sort of duty for a whole section of the composition. But he's thinking really about overall masses, reflections is an important thing, balance. This was a canal that was uh, dug as a hope of being a, an important part of the infrastructure of England, and then a railway line uh, paralleled it, making it obsolete. And there's a kind of poignance there that it has uh, been preserved in a sense, like it will always be sort of quiet and placid. In, in, uh, there's a painting from the Museum of Fine Arts Houston called Sheerness is Seen from the Noor, big landscape, big seascape. And that's, that's pretty early. That's 1808. And I think we're really feeling a nice jump uh, from the fall of the Rhine of a couple of years earlier. There's a sense of the roiling sea. Nothing is really uh, in plain, right? That the sea is already un uncontrollable. And he has a low enough horizon line in these seascapes that he can put a lot of drama up into the clouds. The color is still uh, what you might imagine in the North Sea, but he's really, he's really pushing that uh, as he goes further in his development. Quite important, of course, is the sense of chaos, which comes in these in the seascapes related to the Napoleonic Wars, right? His famous uh, Battle of Trafalgar of 1806 to 8, really in the same period, I think, 
these ships are really locked in combat. This is a large painting uh, also from Tate Britain where you can't really see any water, right? It's almost as if this battle uh, is happening on land. And uh, I think that's another sense. He's ratcheting it up. He's ratcheting up the chaos, the confusion. There's a real sense of arbitrary cropping. I think that's quite important to him. You know, he's way ahead of the uh, precious in that, where he's trying to convey, I believe, a you are there feeling, right? That we're, we're, we're right witnesses to this. In the later 1830s, he's looking a lot at Claude Lorraine, and you've got these really painful sunset, right? With the sun too bright to look at, right? These are great effects, but there's the effect that you want to squint, like Turner's really playing on the strengths of the elements, right? You know, the fire is really hot, the water is really wet, you know, the air is really moving about. And I think all these kind of things, ex experimentation in watercolors, increasing effects in nature, uh, arbitrary cropping, uh, a, a sense of instability, particularly in his marine paintings, all come together in 1840 in the slave ship. It's, it's a, or maybe we could even say that his technique and his choice of subject matter meet their moment at the same time, right? That they, he has a subject that for him is grand enough and tra really tragic enough. Now in the, in the period, right, as I said, when this was unveiled, people were bewildered. This seemed like not a kind of subject you should paint. It wasn't heroic enough, right? People wanted beautifully rendered human figures to explain the the, the tragedy or the sorrow of human trafficking. And you can only see a little bit of people here. And that's really why it's so poignant. We are going to come to the figures in a moment. Before we do, one of the things that's really striking to me about your painting is, and you touched on it briefly a moment ago, is the horizon line or sort of the lack thereof one. It is uneven. It is not a straight line. And you kind of, as you look at the painting, aren't even sure it exists. And, and the only thing that kind of really suggests where it is, is the, moment, is, is the sun meeting presumed horizon line reflection on the water. It seems to me like Turner is probably uh, in this painting and other paintings jumping off from book nine of Milton's Paradise Lost, in which Milton uses sunset as a metaphor for a moment of transition and potential, if not likely, danger. So there's this kind of maximizing romanticism with, 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 within a seascape. Of course, Mil Milton and that passage in Milton will be really important to American painting as we move into the 1840s and for, you know, 200, 180 years thereafter. Let me add one more. I just, just realized in the little, I don't know if you can use this, but in the little art history paragraph, I want to say, let me say this. So in 1835, Turner paints two pictures about the recent fires at the Houses of Parliament, right? So this is really current events. And one of them, the painting in the Cleveland Museum of Art, is in the exhibition. And it's the burning of the Houses of Lords and Commons, October 16th, 1834. That's the title. Turner crams a lot of information into his titles. And there you have this amazing conflagration. It's the really uh, ending of an old order, right? And going to be the building of a new. It's symbolic of the wrenching change, both political and symbolic, uh, in Turner's lifetime. Who governs? Uh, who has the right to vote, that sort of question. And in that, the fire is really a precursor just five years later to the slave ships gleaming and fiery skies. And I think that's a really important step, that you have a great event, an event of, of universal interest and a real national wound. Turner, in a not large format picture, is able to really make it epic. And I think that is an important step on the way to slave ship. In the Cleveland painting, the fire is reflected in the Thames in the same manner the sunset will be reflected in Slave Ship. 
you began to reference the figures in the foreground of slave ship. Before we talk about those figures, I wanted to set them up a bit. It's certainly not the first time that Turner paints figures in a boat or in the water at sea. Are there pictures in the exhibition in which we see figures in a boat or, or in the water being challenged by the forces of nature? And, and, and how does he kind of represent them? Does he represent them more fully than he will represent the figures in slave ship? There's a really interesting, curious picture, one called a disaster, a disaster at Sea, Wreck of the Amphitrite from 1835, not completed, and a painting that was really in that group that was a large group of works, unfinished, uh, that were not displayed until comparatively recent decades. That's in the exhibition, and it's, uh, it's a similar, very poignant episode of shipload of female convicts and some children being shipped to Australia, the penal colony there, and they uh, crash along the French coast in the middle of their journey, and the ship's captain won't accept any help from the shore. Uh, he doesn't want his convicts, uh, his captives, his cargo, really, to, to have the chance to escape, uh, and so they all die. And this picture, which Simon Schammer said, you know, had it been completed, it might be Turner's very greatest. It's really large. It's almost twice as large as the slave ship. There, the goal really has been to emphasize the instability there. Even if Turner, let's say, is not as comfortable or uh, painting uh, bold, muscular figures in the heroic tradition, he's so good at massing figures where you see this group that are trying to hold on you know, to the side of the ship or the mass. They form these you know, immediate communities for a few seconds before the next wave hits. Uh, and I think there's a there's a real power in his description that way, that the way that that, that Turner implicates all of us, and you know that that we too could be in this position, uh, we could be victims, and maybe we didn't help enough, right? Where were we when these when when these women and children were dying? In Slave Ship, Turner paints the figures at sea as outlines. The figures at sea are, of course the men and women who had been on the slave ship. Why do you think he represents them as more or less mere outlines? Turner's at the start of a movement that I think we can relate to still today, that it's better to suggest something or to sketch it out than to completely delineate it, right? To let the audience, let the visitor fill in parts of it, bring ourselves to the picture. Into, there's the famous line where slave ship is Turner's first painting on public display in the United States when it's shown first in New York and then in Boston. But Staffa Fingal's Cave, also in the exhibition, is actually the first one to come to North America. And the North American buyer finds it too indistinct, says to the intermediary. And Turner writes back, he says, indistinctness is my fault, right? Like he's stuck with that. And indeed, indistinctness is a, is a good word for Turner because, again, it's about the power of suggestion, perhaps, rather than actually uh, putting every detail in there, at least with his grandest paintings, leaving aside the watercolors, which are just astonishingly precise. Turner, I think, is trying to make clear that the hands you see shackled and clearly drowning, or the feet, or the or the prominent woman's leg, that they stand in for the 130 or so who are thrown out. Right? There's, you know, only a small mind would insist on every single figure being included, and I think indistinctness emphasizes the hopelessness of it. In some way, the most distinct parts of some of the people Turner portrays in the middle ground of the painting are their hands reaching up out of the water. I am certainly not a Turner expert, but I can't remember 
I don't mean this to be funny, but I can't remember him being all that interested in hands until this painting. <laughs> I think the hands are significant. One, because he can silhouette them a bit against the lighter colored water. Two, because I think it makes clear that the sea here is just the last of several prisons these four people have been subjected to, right? I mean, it's a kind of universal image, right, of prisoners, whether uh, it, it be in an engraving or Beethoven's opera Fidelio, right? Hands reaching through the bars, you know, please free us from this. And I, I think this makes it, uh, I think Turner's underscoring that there is absolutely no, no chance and a last desperate grasp at freedom or even life. I want to wrap up by asking about kind of your personal experience of working on this picture and, and within this exhibition. Slave Ship's been at the Museum of Fine Arts since 1899. For 123 years, this has been in your collection. You've lived with it on your walls, like literally for as long as you've been in, like an, an art historian, let alone alive, right? Um, have you learned anything new or, 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 or different about slave ship through working on this project and by working with the pictures within it? Well, first I should say that the museum has owned the painting since 1899, but it's been on the walls of the MFA much longer than that. Came to yeah. us just a few months after this woman, Miss Alice Hooper, bought it, maybe within a month. And it's, so we've had it off and on from 1876 till 1899 and then continuously. The painting is in exquisite condition. It is if, as as it is as if Turner painted it yesterday, but its exquisite condition, though, is compromised by being incredibly fragile. We haven't lent it anywhere since the 1990s, and this means that the Boston venue of Turner's Modern World is the only place you can see it, and we are really making it the fulcrum of the entire display. It's the middle painting in the middle room of the exhibition, and it's not just fans of British art are kind of astonished to, so all sorts of art fans are astonished to walk through the MFA and say, oh, I didn't know this was here. That's a very common reaction. And then the second reaction is, I didn't remember it as, I didn't think it would be so small, right? You know, it's about, it's kind of the opposite of um, Michelangelo's David. When people see that in academia in Florence, I can't believe, wow, that's really tall. And this is almost the other other side, that it's relatively compact, right? It's, it's a um, Three by four feet. Yep. It is not a grand scale picture by any means. And he does lots of big ones, but he pours his heart into this. And I, I think he gets the balance just right. And that's one thing about it, living with it. All the forces are in a sense of balance or tension, but it is indeed in balance, as you were saying. Is there really a horizon line? What is the feet? What is the plane of the water? Do the waves even make sense? That's sort they, they do not make sense, by the way, but that's great. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, um, but also, Tyler, a related point also, I, I should just say this, that it's a profoundly uncomfortable painting to look at. One, besides being out of joint looking at it, as you said, about the, the inconsistencies visually, but also just the pain of the subject matter. And I don't think Turner was congratulating his British audience at all in 1840. I mean, this anti-slavery act abolition was 1833, and it took till 1838 for finally all the slave owners to be paid off, an enormous amount spent by the government. I don't think he was congratulating himself or, or uh, his public. I think very aware uh, indeed, by the presence of this anti-slavery convention, that slavery still flourished in South and North America, and of course, in our United States. I think one reason Ruskin, who owned the painting for three decades, was pleased that it was going to North America because the North American legacy of slavery uh, was far more severe. And indeed, I think it's a kind of unfinished business, uh, understanding that 
you know, a single curator shouldn't speak for a painting this powerful, one that touches so many people. We have in-gallery video with three different speakers. We have an, a museum educator, uh, an artist, and an art historian talking about this painting. And we also have a series of quotations on the wall from uh, Turner himself, then John Ruskin, and then John Acumfra, the, an artist who works particularly Turner-inspired videos or Turner's period uh, he evokes in his videos. So trying to have a number of voices, and that's not all. We have others, but to make uh, make clear, I think, that no single, there's no single voice and certainly not one curator who can speak for something th this important and one that still feels like an extremely shameful episode. Um, one detail which I had not given enough credit to is the looks like a blue or white cloth in the midground, sort of directly below the ship. And I've never really noticed that until working on this exhibition. And one argument is that it is a flag that was jettisoned overboard, a bit like the enslaved people, the victims. The idea being that a, a slave ship, a slaver might sail under a false flag and then when approached, right, with the, the storm going on in this and the enslaved people who were dying or ill, uh, being thrown overboard for the insurance money, right? It's important to stress that this would only have been an, uh, an international incident because the investors wanted their insurance money, right? And the idea of the victims being jettisoned off, it happened frequently, but it was only that the the, the insurance claims for cargo lost at sea what really made the really generated the outcry. And, and this makes a lot of sense. There's the, there's the whole argument also that if a Navy ship captured a slave ship, there would be bonuses for every enslaved person rescued, right? Which would might inspire the captain of the ship to jettison people before uh, they could be boarded and captured. So that's another question. And, and mm -hmm. is, is this cloth in the water, a white uh, cloth with blue stripes or forms, is, is that a flag, right? Is it a false flag? Is it indicative of the deception that's on top of the cruelty in the picture. I should note that while Britain compensated enslavers, it did not compensate the enslaved for, for their stolen labor, and nor would the United States, including not with land, in 1865. Frederick Gilchman, thanks so much. Always a pleasure to talk to you. Really enjoyed this. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.